Amen. Good morning, Grace Point. Stand with me. If you sit down too quickly, you know better. John chapter 9, verse 31. We'll start from there. This is going to be a part two today of what we began last Sunday. And uh, we could just do this for a lot of Sundays, but we're going to wind it up today, do as many as we can. Uh, I'm not going to be as ambitious this Sunday as I was last. We did 10 things that Jesus never said, and it's things that a lot of the church thinks he said, but he didn't. Today, we're just going to try to get seven of them in, and if we can, if we don't, we'll get as many as we can. How about that? Uh, they are things that Jesus said that people think he said. Religion kind of portrays that he said, but he never said those things. Everything in the Bible is written for you, but not everything written in the Bible is written to you. Do you understand the difference? And so there are some things that if you take everything as a direct command from God, there's things that God recorded in Scripture that people said, like Job made many statements that he later said that he said things he didn't understand. He didn't even know what he was talking about. And uh, so we see that in Scripture. So I just want to go through these this morning. We're going to start with this first one. And this is one that comes out of this verse. The first thing that Jesus never said was that God does not hear the prayers of sinners. How many ever heard that said or preached that God doesn't hear sinners' prayers unless they're praying to be saved? And that's simply not true. John 9.31 is where they get this from. And it says, now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears them. So he tax two things that you got to do in order for God to hear your prayer. Now, Jesus didn't say this. Who's doing the talking here? I've taught you that you have to take scriptures in context. If you take a scripture out of context, if you remove the text that that scripture is being spoken in, you're left with just the con. Remember that? And so this is what we have here is this is a man who at the time he made this statement, he don't even know who Jesus is. He has no clue who he is. And if you read the whole story there, the things that happened, this is a blind man who was born blind who Jesus healed of his blindness. Now, they interrogated this guy really hard and said, who is it? Why can you see? And this is the famous statement that this man did make. He said, all I know is I was once blind, but now I see. That's, it. That's all he said that he knew. And so uh, I'm going to let you be seated. We're going to talk about this this morning. But Jesus didn't make this statement. This blind man made it. And he uh, was later thrown out of the temple because he was like trying to instruct the Pharisees by making this statement. So they, they cast him out of the temple. They even went to this guy's parents and said, you tell us, is this your son who was born blind? And he said, that, they said, yes, it's our son. They said, how is it that he sees? They said, ask him. He's of age. He can answer for himself. And so then they go back to him, and this is where he makes those statements. Now, once Jesus, it says, knew he had been cast out of the temple, then Jesus found him, and he says, do you believe in the Son of God? He said, I don't even know who that is. Jesus replied and said, it is he who both sees you and is talking to you even now. And he said, Lord, I believe. And that's when he began to understand what was going on and who it was and how it was that he was healed. Can I show you that not only does Jesus hear the prayers of sinners, but he hears the prayers of demons. 
Now, me believes if he would answer the prayer of a demon, he'd answer yours. Okay, Mark chapter 5, verse 12 says, So all the demons begged him, send us into the swine that we may enter him. So here we got demons asking Jesus, praying to him, if you will, that they not be just cast into the abyss, so to speak, but they be allowed to go into the swine. And Jesus answers and gives permission. And then unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. If Jesus will answer the prayers of demons, how about more so would he answer yours? So you just don't believe that lie. All through the Bible, we see where Jesus is ministering to, hearing the prayers, hearing the quest, request of sinners and those who have been born again. Can you say amen to that one? Number two thing that Jesus never said is he doesn't hear the prayers of bad husbands. I had a guy sometime back, amen. Uh, this one I hadn't addressed, I don't think probably ever, but I, I had a guy ask me, he said that him and his wife was in a little tiff. You know, let me tell you something that you shouldn't do as, as anybody, particularly Christian husband and wives. You should not use the Bible against each other in the midst of your fuss. Okay? Now, husbands are notorious for quoting, the Bible says, woman, you're to submit to me. I won't ask how many women have heard that quoted to them in the middle of a spat. And that wife is accused of not being a very submissive wife. Because she won't shut up and do what the husband says. Amen? Hey, come on now. Y'all don't get quiet on me. But husband and wives sometimes in the heat of the moment do unfortunately use the Bible to use that to attack one another with Scripture. That's not what it's for. And that's the wrong place and time to be using it. In fact, the very first verses of 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to read verse 7, but it actually says, wives submit unto your husbands. And, and, uh, and, and that is a biblical admonition, but it also later on says that the husband should also and the wife submit to one another. But they, they don't ever quote that one. Uh, they just use the one that they want. Well, here's one that sometimes wives use uh, and have used. And it says, 1 Peter 3 and 7, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding. Give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together, notice, heirs together of the grace, the grace of life. And then it says that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, sometimes I've seen couples use this and a wife would, you know, come back with this one and use this one and say, well, God don't hear anything. And I had a guy here a while back ask me or, you know, you know, said, you know, my wife says that God doesn't even hear my prayers anymore, you know, because we're not, you know, getting along uh, here lately. Well, can I do, I'm not encouraging, you know, bad behavior, but I'm just simply saying that's not true. Uh, you know, for you to read this verse, let me tell you what this verse doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God don't hear the prayers of jerks, okay? Uh, God does hear the honest, sincere prayers of jerks, of crooks, and of thieves and of sinners. And we've got that all throughout uh, the New Testament. So, so you, you know, we want you to make, you know, reconciliation with one another and get that done. But I'm just saying a sincere prayer, God hears you. So you're not cut off. The, the church is always trying to charge for what's free. Grace is free. Amen. It costs God his life, but it's free to us. That's why it's called grace. And so in, in Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 13 and 14, you got the picture of two different people that come before God. You have a tax collector. The Bible says he comes in and, and stands afar off. He wouldn't so much as even raise his eyes to heaven. And it says he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, what? A sinner. 
And then there's another man who was a Pharisee there, and, and, and he actually goes to prayer, and he says, he looks around and he says, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like other men. He said, and, and, and he said, adulterers and liar and all that, and he said, even this tax collector over here, I'm glad I'm not like this guy. And he, then he starts enumerating all the great things he does for God. He says, I give a tenth of all that I possess. I fast twice a week. And he starts enumerating all the good things that he does and why that he should be acceptable to God. And Jesus says that the guy that went home right with God was the, sin, the guy that said, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said that guy's the one that went, right, went home right with God, not this other guy. And, and, and so what I'm saying to you, God right there says, he heard the prayers of this man who himself said, be merciful to me, or what? A sinner. And, uh, but, but, so, but how are our prayers? It does mention in that verse that your prayers can be hindered. When it's, and, and it's talking about that your prayers can be hindered. So it says don't allow your prayers to be hindered. Now, there are things that can hinder your prayers, whether you're a man or a woman or a wife or a husband. There's things that can uh, hinder your prayers. But, but the religious people always try to put these, these little you know, regulations that they themselves don't even keep up with, but they try to put all these barriers on there. But, but you've got to understand this. In the first century, the, the, this New Testament church age, women were, were not considered to be equal in fact, they were considered to be inferior in many ways. You see this reflected in the New Testament of how that they are instructed in, in Corinthians. to If they have a question in church, they're not to say anything. They're to keep quiet and they're to ask their husbands when they get home. And even how the, the history tells us how they were seated. And they didn't even allow, allow to be seated with their husbands or with the men. And, and they were seen and they were not allowed to participate in any of that uh, uh, temple or synagogue worship in the New Testament days. But see, Jesus didn't treat women like that. Can you say amen? So Jesus made friends with all kind of women, and not just the kind of women you want to bring home to, to meet mama, but the kind of women that you don't bring home to meet mama. Jesus made friends with them. He spoke with them. He ministered to them. Uh, he talked with them. Uh, Jesus treated women like they were his disciples. In fact, the Bible says he took them on his ministry trips with him. And uh, he reached out to women, even women that were not maybe socially acceptable, like the woman at the well. Jesus there, this, not, not so much of the rumor about her lifestyle, but it was the fact that she was a Samaritan and Jews did not speak to Samaritans at all, men or women, and much less to talk to a, a Jewish man to speak to a Samaritan woman was just unheard of, undone. And yet Jesus carries on a loving, uh, ministering conversation with this woman at the well in John 4. Uh, the Galatians goes on to say that there's neither male nor female, uh, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's, that's a, so we don't get that today, but that was a radical statement. So how do our prayers get hindered? Because he said that your prayers can be hindered. How do they, they get hindered? Uh, you, got, you got to have this mindset. Paul said that husbands and wives are co-heirs with Christ. That means equal heirs if you're a co-heir. Uh, uh, Peter says the same thing. Now, he says, treat your wife with respect to honor them. Uh, I remember one time years ago, some of you remember this, I, I, uh, I was doing a series, and one of the, the, the uh, sermons of that series was we did one on masculinity, what it means to be masculine. And, 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 and I went through these things, and, and man, that was uh, some, some of the guys thought that was kind of tough on them. 
and, and I remember when I walked out, and I'm not saying I thought I was, did a great job that day, but I'm just saying when I walked out of this sanctuary, and I'd been in here a while, there was still a line of women standing at this, out there at the resource table to get the CDs from that service. Uh, that told me something. Uh, they were women buying those, those CDs for their, their sons and their grandsons and probably for their husbands as well. Um, but, but if you don't see anybody as your equal, in other words, the Bible teaches that, that it says, I read it for you, that they are co-heirs of the grace of life. And so you got to ask yourself, do you see your spouse as a co-heir? You say, well, I, the Bible says that they're the weaker vessel. It's talking about in strength. I, now, not always. There's exceptions. But on the average, if we go muscle to muscle, strength to strength, a man is going to be stronger. But it doesn't mean they're weaker like mentality or weaker and in, in, in inferior as a person. Uh, I explained it to the men that day. Men are kind of like thermoses. You can drop them, kick them, they're going to be all right. But a woman is more like a goblet, like a glass. You understand what I mean? And um, a little champagne goblet or whatever you want to call it. But you, you got to handle that differently. You, you don't, boy, if some men talk to other men the way they talk to their wife, they wouldn't have any teeth in the front. You know, I'm, I'm just amazed sometimes you hear the way people talk one another, and particularly husbands, the way they talk to one, they wouldn't talk to another person like that. They wouldn't talk to another uh, a, a man that way. And that's what God's saying. Just treat them with honor. And honor produces life. And, and But you got to see your spouse and everybody, as far as that goes, as a co-heir of the grace of life. Or when you look at your spouse, do you see them? I mean, if you're a man and you look at your spouse as your wife, do you see her as inferior? Because, uh, you know, and, and, it, and it goes with anybody. You go, how do you see your children, your, your grandchildren? Let me ask you this. How do you see different uh, people of different culture, a different race? Uh, are they equal in grace in your eyes, or are they inferior to you in your eyes? Come on. just I'm talking gut level, honest now. If you see other people as equal in grace, then you're actually walking in the grace of God. However, if you see yourself as superior in some way, then you are not walking in the grace of life and, and your prayers will be hindered. Now, how will your prayers be hindered? Because picture those two guys again. The Pharisee comes to go to prayer and here comes this other guy, you know, this tax collector, he comes to prayer. Now, look at how the, the Pharisee prays. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not. See, his prayers are being hindered. He's not praying the will of God and the grace of God. He's praying out of pride and arrogance and saying, I'm better than this guy. And he's in church doing this, so to speak. He said, I'm glad I'm not like this guy. I'm, see, his prayers are being hindered. And it's because of how he views other people. And he doesn't see the tax collector as a co-heir of the grace of life. And if you see your wife as inferior to you, you won't pray for her properly. Your prayers will be hindered. You won't pray. It's not like God cuts this guy off. Okay, well, I don't hear the prayers of jerks. You're cut off. No, that's, that's religion that teaches you that. But your prayers will be hindered because you won't see each other in the light of being a co-heir of the grace of God and the grace of life. And you won't walk in that grace and you won't pray in that grace. Does that make sense? Uh, let me tell you what performance-based religion does. All it does is it furnishes you with a mirror to admire yourself in. I mean, that's it. 
You know, that guy started saying, I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all. I mean, all that does is just furnish you a stage in which to promote yourself. And, and, and do you really think that God's going to be impressed with your sacrifice when you're not impressed with his? That's a good place to get a drink right there. If you're not impressed with God's sacrifice of his only begotten son, I promise you he's not impressed with it no matter what you come up with, what you do. Uh, God doesn't bless us in accordance with our performance or in accordance, accordance with our output. The Bible says that God has blessed us according to the riches of his grace. Can you say amen to the Bible? See, that's why religious superstars, really all they do is just distance themselves away from God's grace. Jesus made a statement that just ticked everybody off in Matthew 21 and 31. He told those Pharisees, he said, I want to tell you something, tax collectors and prostitutes will go into the kingdom ahead of you. And these were the most religious people of the day. They felt like they were keeping all the rules and regulations and they were doing all the stuff just right. And Jesus said, prostitutes will beat you into heaven. <laughs> that was a good sermon that day, wasn't it? They enjoyed that one. Number three thing, third thing that Jesus never said is you better get as many people as possible to pray for this need. You better bombard heaven. You better give God no rest. I was raised on this mentality. It's totally unbiblical, and it actually blasphemes God and his motive. If you see God, God's relationship to his kids is not judicial. My relationship to my children, my grandchildren, is not judicial. It's fatherly. It's our father who art in heaven, not our judge. God does not sit on the seat of judgment towards his children. He sits on the throne of grace. And, and, and so the truth is that a lot of times people, they, they read a parable. This is one of the places they get it. They get it out of several places. But in Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives a parable. And the parable goes something like this, that there's this widow woman. She comes before the king seeking justice. Uh, he ignores her because he is a king, a judge who fears not God or regards man. Now, that's not a good guy. In other words, he don't care about nobody but himself. But yet this widow woman keeps pursuing him and badgering him and petitioning him. And finally he says, lest this woman just wear me completely out, I will give her what she's asking. And what preachers do with that is they read that story and here they come and preach that as if that's our posture as Christians. That we're supposed to just wear God out. We're supposed to bombard heaven. We're just supposed to get his, you know, pray, pray, pray. And if God sees you're really working hard and you're praying hard and you've crossed over that little imaginary line that you can't see but God's apparently got one and you've broken through. They're big time on breakthrough. Let me tell you something. The only breakthrough you got is the one that Jesus already broke through and that's the one you follow. But Jesus here in the parable, why does he give the parable? Because this is looking in verse 6 of Luke 18. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust, he said, in other words, do you hear what the unjust judge said? Shall not God not avenge his own elect who cry out to him day and night, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them how? What does it say? Speedily. Not only will God said, I will avenge them, but I'll avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Do you see it? Do you see it? I just read it for you. God not only said he would avenge his own, but he would do it quickly. Now, now God's not reluctant to answer 
prayers of his kids like the unjust judge. The, the deal here, God is not making a comparison with this parable. Jesus is making a contrast. Jesus is saying, you see this unjust judge? You see how he ignores this woman's petition, her prayers, if you will? You see how that he just waits and waits until she finally just wears him out and he finally grants her her prayer request? He said, your heavenly father is not like this guy. He said, he's not like that. Now, see, listen to me. Now, don't get mad. Don't send me nothing because I know how to delete stuff. But that's the problem with prayer chains. The whole mentality of prayer chains predominantly, and I'm not against all prayer chains. I'm against you having a view of God that says you've got to, to sign as many, get as many signatures on this prayer request as possible. I see it every day almost on Facebook. A crisis will happen. A child will be sick or a terminal diagnosis is made, and they'll just bombard the media. And I, and I get it because they're desperate. They're desperate, and they're scared. They're afraid. And so, they, they, and I, but I'll read what they write. We've got, they say we've got to get as many people possible praying for this need. Because, listen, and that's why they work so hard. And they'll send that prayer request around the world, literally. Because they think the more people they got praying, the better their chances get an answer. Y'all know, you might well say, man, owe me something. Is that how you view God? That's a good daddy, ain't it? My kids come to me, they desperately need something, and I say, well, go see how many signatures you can get on this. Go through the neighborhood and come back. You know, if you get at least 50 signatures, I might hear your request. Would that be a great dad? Mm -mm, that, that wouldn't be a dad at all. See, but if you see God as judicial and as a judge, then you're going to try to do what they do in Washington. You're going to try to get as many signatures as possible. Because you don't think, number one, God hears your prayer because you've got to get the person that's close to God to pray. And we addressed that last Sunday. Well, you, you, you know, go pray. You know, I, I tell you what you need to get this brother to pray for because he's close to the Lord. See, it, 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 it's a myth. It's wrong for you to seek to be close to God. You don't get that from the Bible. You didn't get that from the Bible. You got that from religion. Well, don't it say in James, you know, draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you? Yeah, yeah, to sinners, he says that. He says, cleanse you, you sinners. He's talking to sinners. Sinners are not close to God because they're not in Christ yet. But if any man be in Christ, and I told you last Sunday, and I won't belabor the point, but some of you are here today, went here last Sunday. To pray to be close to God as, for a believer, to pray to be close to God, closer to God. You, you can't be any closer to God than in Christ. So to pray to be closer to God is to pray to be in the sanctuary at Grace Point right now, and you're sitting in here. For you to waste time right now praying to be closer to the sanctuary when you're sitting in the sanctuary is as dumb as dirt. And it's a total waste of prayer. It's just ridiculous. Now, I get it that you don't feel close to God. I get it. Because I live in a human vessel body too. And some days these old bodies don't even feel saved, do they? They hurt, they ache. You just don't feel good. You look at people and go, I don't like you. You're not supposed to, but you're just, you're just not having one of your best days. You're probably tired, worn out, need to get some rest, hang out with God a little bit more. But it doesn't mean you're not close to God. 
See, religion teaches you that because it wants you to keep you busy working and laboring and striving for, and you don't even know when you get there. How do you know when you're close? You, you, a goosebump? You speak in tongues? You, you shout? Is that, you're closer? Than, it's just ridiculous. It's just, religion is so stupid, I'm amazed that we even fall for it. But you, you, got, you got to understand that that's what God's telling you, that you don't have to have 100 people to sign your petition of prayer for me to answer. God's a good father. He, he, the number of people you have praying is irrelevant to the request. I, I want to tell you something else. Some people think that prayer is so you inform God of your crisis. And you think if you explain it to God in such a pitiful way and, and you let God know how desperate and, 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 and horrible the situation is that he's more inclined to answer your prayer. He is not moved by that, your desperation. Let me say this. Desperation is not the same thing as faith. It is not the same thing as faith. And I've seen a lot of people in hospital rooms and a lot of places that they were totally desperate, but they had no faith. No faith. See, your Heavenly Father is already on your side. You, there, you don't have to do anything to, to win him over. He, he, he's with you. He's in you if you're born again. He's for you. He's not against you. And you need to know that. Now listen to me. Listen to this statement. There is nothing that you or I can do. There's not a prayer that we can pray to make God more disposed to you than what Jesus has already done. You can't improve on what Jesus has done. God put you in Christ so he could treat you like Christ. And he hears your prayers just like he hears Christ's prayers. God loves you. Prayer is simply you and I receiving by faith in his goodness what his grace has already freely provided for us. That's all prayer is. Can somebody say amen? That, man, that's good. The fourth thing that Jesus said, I have come to start a new religion. That's what people think. Now, Jesus did not leave heaven and become a man, come to earth to establish a new religion. Here we go now. You was all right, but I'm going to use the word. But let me explain. Let me explain. Jesus did not leave heaven, come to earth to start a religion called Christianity. Now, I'm not going to waste a lot of energy and time trying to, you know, start a campaign against the word Christianity. And it serves us pretty well in the States. But you can't go into the Middle East or to a Muslim nation and use it and not be successful. You won't be successful. In other words, you don't walk, you can walk up to your average American guy, you know, and say, you know, do you want to be a Christian or are you a Christian? And they would know what you mean. If you ask them that here in the states, that, that would means are you are you a Christian? Are you uh, you know like born again? Are you a follower of Christ? And, and most people would would accept that. Most people of American understanding would accept that. You go to a Muslim nation and, and you say to a person there, "Do you want to be a Christian?" And they're going they're going to go heaven no. Get that? No, they don't want to be a Christian. Because Christians and Muslims have been killing each other for centuries. And still are. So they don't want to be a Christian. Because a Muslim sees a Christian as just an, another sect or murderer. Y'all mighty quiet. And, and just as a side note, and, and again I don't want to belabor the point because it, it's, it's not a critical issue. 
But there is not one command in the Scripture, in the New Testament, that ever told us to call each other Christians. Even though you think there are, but there's not. The word's only used three times in the whole New Testament. And every time it's used, uh, the king Agrippa, when Paul went before Agrippa and Felix, Paul starts giving this testimony, and the guy said, you know, he's being very sarcastic. Because in the first century, according to everything we can read from Josephus, Jewish historian, church, the word Christian was a, was a negative, mockery term. It was not something that people, it was, it was a hateful term. It was a racial, hateful term. And, and that's why Paul said, if you're going to suffer as Christians, you've you, you got to be like a good soldier. In other words, they were suffering being called that. They didn't like being called that. What it actually meant in this origin was little Christ. Little Christ. It was not a compliment. King Agrippa said, told Paul sarcastically, he said, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? Paul never said, yeah. He never said, yeah, that's what I want you to be as a Christian. Hey, Paul, Paul, Paul didn't drive, go down that road with him because it was, a, it was a negative word. Paul said, I wish you would be like me. He didn't say Christian. Wish you'd be like me minus these chains. That's all he said. So my point is, they, they, the Bible, and the only, and I've, I've mentioned two places. The third place that the whole the word Christian is the only time found in the Bible, New Testament, is where they were first called Christians at Antioch. And again, it was a negative connotation. I'm not saying we should go on a rampage and not call each other Christians. You got my point. I'm, I'm not going there. I'm not wasting energy or time or, or media to do that. I'm, I'm simply saying to you that you have to have a different perspective because Jesus did not come, leave heaven, come to earth to start another religion. The, the word definition religion actually means to bind. And so uh, Jesus didn't come to start a religion. He came to end one because they already had one when he got here. Are you with me? This institution that we know as religion, this pseudo-spiritual uh, practice of rules, regulations, prohibitions, uh, th that has nothing to do with, with God, nothing to do with, with the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives grace. You don't charge for it. You don't earn it. Jesus gives grace. What religion does is it stands there ready to throw a stone when you mess up. Stone the woman issue. You understand? That, that's what religion does. Uh, Jesus points to God when he talks and to God's goodness. Religion always points to you and your badness. Okay? You become the focus instead of Jesus becoming the focus. Religion makes you sin conscious. Uh, being born again makes you Christ conscious. People say, well, we need more preaching against sin. You've had that. How would that work out for you? I was raised on it. It, it don't work. It don't work. Because that's not the issue. The issue is not sin or sin or sin. The issue is life and death. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life. And, and so I've told you over and over, to focus on sin and try to make sin the issue is trying to lose weight while you talk about chocolate pie. It's just not going to work for you. Okay? So, so Jesus is the truth. He doesn't have the truth. He is the truth. Religious, religion is a lie. It promises something that it cannot deliver. Uh, Jesus gives life. He doesn't charge for it. He gives it. Religion dispenses death. Jesus offers freedom. Religion enslaves you and puts you into bondage with rules and regulations that you can't possibly keep. And so Jesus did not come to swap new rules for old rules. He didn't do it. Um, 
I love the message translation of Matthew eleven twenty eight. I know you guys probably don't have that back there, but anyway, the, this is the message translation of Matthew eleven twenty eight. Listen to me as I read it. It says, "Are you tired?" This was Jesus talking. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. In our translation, King James, no, Jesus, that's where Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It, Jesus is not saying, Come unto me, all you that work 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and I'll give you a break. He's labor. What kind of labor? Labor trying to please God. Labor trying to keep the law. Labor trying to achieve what is meant to be received. Jesus said, come to me and I'll give you rest. What is the rest of God? Because it's the Sabbath year, it's the Sabbath day. It's the Sab Every, Jesus is the Sabbath. You know, it's a jubilee year, trying to figure it out. And this is the year. Listen, knock it off, man. Jesus is your jubilee. Today is the day of salvation. The Jubilee's all the time. Don't pull out no calendar and try to prophesy something that now this is going to be a special year. Uh, we figured out it's been 50 years since this happened. Knock it off, man. You've got to get your head out of the Old Testament. That's why people do all kind of stuff because there are New Testament Christians, but they have an Old Testament mind. They really don't know what's new. That's why you got Christian people still running around teaching about generational curses. There's no such thing. See how quiet it got? I mean, I spent decades trying to beat generational curses that I never even had. You can waste a lot of time doing that. And I tell you, there ain't a person on the earth that can teach generational curses from the New Testament. If they ever teach it, guess where they're going? Old covenant. They ain't got nothing because they ain't one. Galatians says we've been redeemed from the curse of the law of sin and death. You've been redeemed. Only curse is between your ears. You believe a lie, you live a lie. I, I was raised up, and I don't mean people did this with demonic intention, but I'm just saying ignorance. Ignorance is, you mean ignorance is still bad. You can intentionally stick your hand in a fan, or you can ignorantly stick your hand in a fan, but your fingers are going to get cut off either way. Right? So I had people tell me, because I had Cherokee, you know, in my ancestry, you know, that's why I was under a curse. I had to repent of that, being a Cherokee. So what did I do? I, I, oh, Lord, I'm sorry for my great-grandma Hutto was full-blood Cherokee. Wash me from all the demons. And here I am, a born-again Christian, buying into all that bull. Somebody told me, I mean, when, when my, uh, you know, some of my kids would ever have a problem or, or something, you know, they, they want to be searching you and say, oh, that's just why your kids got a heart problem because y'all got some Cherokee and you need to repent of that. So what did I do? Dumb. I repented of it. My kid get better? Nope. And undo it. And and and, and it's still just I mean, last week, week before last, I saw people that I admire. I mean, they got good sense, I, you know. But here they're they're promoting on Facebook books about you know I love this book, you know, breaking generational curses. You can sell a lot of books out of fear. No generational curse. Well, I see the same thing happen. Generation. It's called living in that same house. I could take a Russian baby and let him be born in Russia and bring him to America and he'll speak English. Because that's what he's around. And if you put them in an alcoholic house, they very likely may turn out to be alcoholic. Ain't got nothing to do with no curse. It's got to do with what they're around all the time. That's what they see. That's what they know. 
It's what they learned. You're around a bunch of liars, you're going to learn to lie. In the Bible, y'all want some Bible liars? Abraham lied, said Sarah is not my, she's my sister. That's a lie. So Isaac watched his daddy lie, so Isaac got in the same bind with his wife. He told the same lie his daddy told. I'm talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now, if y'all need to follow me. So then Jacob comes along, third generation. That's all he knows. He, daddy lies, grandpa lies. I'm a lie. My whole life is a lie. My whole life is a lie. I've been deceiving everybody since I've been born. He had to go through a change. He had to encounter Jesus, and he said, we're going to cut out the lying generation's things here. You know, you ain't got no sin generation. You got no curse. You got a sin habit. Hallelujah. I just tore up some book sales. Don't buy into that stuff, man. There's not a person in the world that can teach that. And I was raised on it. Wasted decades trying to beat something that I didn't even have. If I'd have just put my confidence in what Jesus had accomplished. People trying to dethrone principalities, going to go on a prayer march. Have you read Colossians? And you telling me you're going to do better? He left something undone for you to do? Colossians said he put down every principality and power and ruler. You got to go whip it now because he didn't whip it, because he didn't defeat it. He said he made a public spectacle, all of them. The problem is that there, you know, people can yield themselves to wrong things and it seemingly be there because they don't believe in what Jesus did in the finished work of the cross. Can somebody say amen? The fifth thing that Jesus never said was grace must be balanced with law. Now, I'm going to tell you something. You're in a grace church, okay? So if you've, been, if you've been raised like me, a lot of our theology is still under renovation, we're, we're renovating going on. Really? And, and, and the one that's talking has not arrived at the pinnacle of the temple, okay? So I'm still learning. But I'll tell you what, I, you know, I, I'm not arrived, but I have left the station. I am not where I used to be. In, in, in belief and understanding of God's amazing grace. I told you I was raised in a church that we almost, I won't say almost, and, and it's true, sung amazing grace in one form or another, uh, scheduled or unscheduled, every Sunday, but nobody ever seemed to be amazed about grace. And I never heard one message ever preached from the pulpit about the grace of God. And if I ever heard grace, the word said from the pulpit, it was always in a negative connotation, greasy grace, you think you can just slide in, you know, and all this kind of stuff. It was never exalting grace as a high place that the Bible has it. And they would talk about people falling from grace because they slept with somebody or they committed this sin or they stole this and they've, they've fallen from grace. That's not how the Bible says you fall from grace. The Bible, Paul said in Galatians, this is how you fall from grace. You try, to, you try to reach God through the law. He said you have just fallen from grace. You try to exalt the law and think that you can live a life and somehow be acceptable and pleasing to God by obeying rules, then you have fallen from grace because grace is a high and lofty place because grace is Jesus Christ. Grace has a name, grace has a face, grace has eyes, and grace is a person and his name's Jesus. Amen. And so a lot of people that, you know, they, they say, you, you know, okay, well, I believe in grace, Brother Dale, but you got to balance. You know, it's got to be balanced now. You know, and they'll even quote like where in First John, where it ta- or John, first chapter of John, where it talks about, you know, 
Moses, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth was you know, given through Jesus Christ. And, and they see truth as the law in their mind. They see it as law. Truth there has nothing to do with the law. Jesus admonished us over and over, you cannot mix grace and law together. But I want to say to you, most churches and most Christians have a hybrid gospel. You know what I mean by that? I mean, they, they have a mixture. So you have that grace, you're saved by grace, but then you're kept by yourself. And it's simply not true. Now, listen, there's two ways you can re- you try to relate to God. You can relate to God through grace, or you can relate to God through the law. If you relate to God through grace, it means that you're focused on what God has done for you. If you relate to God through the law, then you, you're focused on what you can do for God. And, and, and regardless of what people say, grace don't make you lazy. But you're not trying to earn a position with God. You've been gifted a position with God. Now, I, I've talked about this a lot over the years, but, but this, this, I like pictures. I like videos. And in Luke chapter 18, I, I won't read it, but the story I've done referred to today between the Pharisee and the tax collector, it illustrates this thing that I'm talking about, grace and law. The, the Pharisee, remember, he thanked God that he was not like other men. He even uh, thanked God that he wasn't like that tax collector that he was looking at in the same church service that he was in, right? And so the tax collector stood at the distance. He wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. Just said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, the Pharisee took pride in his performance, but Jesus was not impressed, Okay. The tax collector had nothing to brag about, but he is the one who went home right with God. That's what Jesus said. So right there is just a little video picture. That's the difference between law and grace. The law silenced the proud. The Bible said the law was given to shut the mouth of those who would boast in their righteousness. But while grace, what does it do? It elevates the humble. Because our confidence is in a person. It's not in any performance that we've done. There's no mixing of the law and grace allowed. You, 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 can, you can try or trust. Do you hear me? You can try or you can trust. You can try to keep the law. I'm going to go on and tell you, you've already failed. Okay? Or you can just trust in the sacrifice that Jesus paid for you, and that's how you live your life. Okay? Number six thing that Jesus never said. Aren't I doing well? We might get them all in. Grace is a license to sin. Now, these folks that hate grace message, uh, they use this one a lot. It's just a license to sin. That is so stupid. I don't know where they come up with this license requirement anyway. But listen, grace is no more a license to sin than electricity is a license to be electrocuted. Follow me? Now, electricity is supposed to be a blessing to you. But if you mishandle it, it can, you understand? So the grace of God, let, let, let me give you another video. You remember this dude, this little short guy? Because the Bible says that, and I'm not being offensive. Zacchaeus, remember that guy? Climbed up the what? See, you always remember them little Sunday school stories, right? So he climbed up sycamore tree so he'd get a better look at Jesus when he come by. And so now this guy was hated by the Jews. He was a Jew, but he worked for the hated Romans. He's a tax collector. He's rich. The Bible says he's rich. He's lining his pockets uh, with tribute. He, you know, he's getting his cut out of it. And, you know, and, and actually he admits later to being a thief. He's stolen stuff uh, wrongly. And uh, so, you know, these people that say, well, grace is a license to sin. Now, when Jesus comes by, he knows him up a tree, and he invites himself. Look at Jesus go. 
he invites himself to have dinner with Zacchaeus at his home. And so, of course, Zacchaeus is honored. He, he accepts this rabbi, you know, and come to his house. Nobody else would have anything to do with him. All the Jews hated him. So here's Jesus. This, this, this guy comes, and, and he has a meal with him. And so when Zacchaeus, listen, watch me now. When Zacchaeus experiences the grace of God through, his, through Jesus, Jesus is God. He's Emmanuel, God with us. So when he experiences it, that grace, and you can't be with Jesus without experiencing grace. Then after that encounter, then Zacchaeus is four times worse than he ever was. He steals more money, and he becomes more obnoxious than he ever was. Because grace, you know, is a license to sin. So it just made him a better sinner. That's not how the story goes, is it? I didn't go brain dead for a minute. I just wanted to make a point. What, what, was, G, what was Zacchaeus's reaction to his encounter with grace? He said, I'm going to restore fourfold of everything that I have stolen. He said, I'm going to give half of everything I own to the poor. It changed him radically. And did it make him more of a sinner or less of a sinner? Less of a sinner. See, that's what the Bible says in Titus 2 and 12. Grace, the real grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So the real grace, see, I've never been afraid to preach the true grace of God because it will actually teach you. Now, it's going to teach you. It's not abracadabra, abracazoon grace, go and thou shalt ever never sin again. No, no, it's going to teach you, though. The grace of God is going to teach you to say no. You need to learn to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. But if you hang around and you are preached the grace of God, you will sin less and not sin more. You will not go, since all of my sins are dealt with, I'll just be a raging lunatic sinner. It, it doesn't have that effect. You have not experienced the grace of God. You've experienced religion called grace. But grace teaches you to say no. Last thing that Jesus never said. Look at there. My sacrifices only took care of your past sins. The rest is up to you. Now this one, I'm not going to have the time to unwrap this like I would like to. And I know that most of you have heard me talk about this. But one of the Bible's greatest truths that Christians today still miss is that Christ Jesus died to take away all sin. The other truth that we've written about, we've blogged about, I've wrote about it in my book, is that the word sin, most every time in the New Testament, is not a verb. It's a very important distinction because the average Christian, when they hear sin, they think of an action. I did this, therefore I sinned. They see it as a verb, an action. I committed this, I did this. I, you know, and so they see it as a verb. The Bible, the Bible primarily sees and uses the word sin as a noun, person, place, or thing, not an action. And, and that's a very important, the Bible says that him who knew no sin became sin, there's no verb in it, okay? And you can look it up, there's, it's, it's a noun. Uh, and so when the Bible's talking most of this time about the word sin, it's, it's using it as, a, as, as the scripture does most of the time. The, the book of Romans, I've told you this over and over, the book of Romans, the word sin is used more 
in the book of Romans, any other New Testament book. And it's used in most translations around 39 times the word sin appears. Only one time is sin a verb. Every other time it's a, it's a noun. And if you don't get that, you, your, your theology and how you view things is going to really be askew. And you're not going to view it properly. Now, 2 Peter 1, 8 and 9 is where they come up with their proof verse that is past sins only. And this is what I was raised on. This is what I was taught. If 2 Peter 1 and 8 says, For if these things, Peter's writing here, if these things are yours, he's talking about the grace of God, forgiveness, and they abound in you, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look in verse 9. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness. And he has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. The word old here has to do, remember the, Paul taught the distinction about the old man? The old man is dead. Uh, he's talking about your old way, your old life. God didn't put a paint job on the old you. When you got born again, he didn't take the old you and just sand you down, give you another paint job, stamp Christian on your forehead and send you out. You with me? Total new creation. I mean, the old you was so bad, God had to kill that one and start over. That's what the cross did. Come on now, that's the truth. That's what the cross did. We were crucified with Christ. We were buried with Christ, and we are therefore raised in the newness of the resurrected life. That's what water baptism symbolizes. And, and so if, if you want to keep a Christian really bound up and fearful, if you want to keep a Christian really weak and powerless, all the enemy has to do is to get you to believe that Jesus has only forgiven you of the past sins and now the rest of it is up to you to maintain not only forgiveness but your salvation because if you fail to confess one and the rapture happens, you're going to be left here. Isn't that a graceful gospel? That's what I was raised on. So I lived in fear of day of my life. thought, you know, think if I misconfess one because not only did they tell me that I had to confess sins that I of sins of commission, but I had. The, we also understood that we sinned by omission. We sinned and didn't even know we were sinning. But yet, I still got to confess those too. So we'd pray this prayer: Father, forgive me for all the sins I've committed, and forgive me for the ones I've committed I don't even know I've committed. I just want to get a clean slate here. And you have to clean the slate every day, every moment of every day. And you're always afraid that it's going to, you know, like you're going to, you're going to kick the cat, cuss the dog, and holler at the wife, and then boom, here comes the rapture, and boom, you you missed it. And I was raised around people, and, and this is a sad thing, but okay, but I was raised around people who said we, we we don't we don't believe in future forgiveness. And I don't have time. I got I got to quit. But in First John. Chapter 1 and 9 is the only verse that, that everybody trots out as their proof text that you have to confess your sins one by one. And it's the only, you know why they always trot that one out? Because it's the only one they got. It's the only one in the whole New Testament. Verse after verse after verse, even in 1 John, says, because in, in 1 John chapter 2, he says, I write unto you, my little children, for your sins are forgiven you for his sake. He didn't say they will be if you confess them. He, my little children know he's talking to Christians. But in, in chapter 1, when he says, if you'll confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you all sin to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, it is absolutely clear he's talking to sin nerves and sin deniers. He's talking to Gnostic people who they all understood at that time. They didn't even admit that sin was even a real deal. That's why he said if you'll acknowledge that sin exists, because God said if you don't acknowledge that you have sin, then you make me out a liar because that's why I sent my son. 
So if you say sin don't even exist, and you're mocking me because that's the reason I sent him. And you, you calling me a liar. I'm telling you, if you admit sin exists, because they, see, they didn't say that we ain't sinned much. They said we have no sin. I've never met anybody stupid enough to say they had no sin, saint or sinner. Have you? No. They admit, a saint or sinner will admit, yeah, I've had, yeah, I've had, they said no sin. You kidding me? They don't even believe in it. That's what he's writing to. He's not telling the Christians that you've got to sin by sin, confession by confession, keep your slate clean by confessing every sin you commit. Because I'll tell you something, man, listen to me, you can't keep up with what you've done. Not really. You can't keep, you telling me that now your salvation hinges on your ability to confess each and every little sin that you've ever committed? So you the one got to keep yourself clean. The blood of Jesus don't do it. Your talking does it. You see how that all falls apart? Now let me bring you a real story. I was surrounded by people that didn't believe in any kind of future forgiveness of sin. By the way, how many of your sins and my sins were future when Jesus hung on the cross? All. all. Okay then. So that includes future sins. And if it does it back then, it does it right now. Jesus removed all sin through the sacrifice of himself. That's verses all in the Bible, New Testament that says that. So all sin means all. It means past, present, and future. Okay, now listen to me. They said, ain't no way, you know, and there's no such thing as future forgiveness of sin. And so I was surrounded by people like that. And then my first cousin commits suicide. Now, I was raised, you know, saying that if you commit a suicide, you go straight to hell. Don't pass go. You don't collect $200. You go straight to hell. That's a whole nother sermon. Anyway. And you got to understand this. I, I get so tired of, I just get wore out with stuff. Most of the time, you understand the Bible you're reading out of is a translation. I don't care if it's King James, King Jimmy, New King Jimmy, NIV. It's a translation. And I don't mean to, to dilute the value. I'm just simply saying that, that most of the time when the word hell is in the Bible, it's not talking about a burning place. No. I wish you'd get educated before you start using words you don't even know what you're talking about. No. It means the grave. Well, the Bible says hell hath enlarged itself to receive the multitude. Ain't got nothing to do with no fiery pit. It's the grave. It's the grave. Read it. Go to the original Hebrew, see what it says. It's the grave. Very few places, even in the New Testament, mean a place, Gehenna, of burning. But yet all the Christian needs to see is the word hell. And here we go. That's Satan's headquarters. They're shoveling coal. People are burning. We've got a pitchfork. I mean, here we go. That's where the American mentality Christian mind goes. And yet hell's such a big deal and nobody ever preaches on it. But I preached on it several years ago and gave you good news about hell and boy, did the hell come. But it also set a lot of people free. And, and, and Anyway. But the church just gets all caught up in religion. And, and, we, and, we, don't, and we don't even know. So my, my cousin commits suicide. Now one thing I know about my cousin, he struggled, man. He struggled with a lot of things. But he was born again. That guy was born again. In fact, he's the guy I told you a few Sundays ago that God used mightily 
that doesn't mean just because God used him, but it, God used him mightily in, in, in me calling me into the ministry. He, he wrote a letter from Jackson State Prison. God could have used anybody, but he used my cousin because that would have been the least person I ever thought at that time that God would have used or could have used or would have used. But God chose to give him that vision in a Jackson State Prison cell. And he wrote that letter to his dad, and his dad delivered it to me. And it, it mightily changed my life. You know, God will use people you don't think that are even usable anymore. <laughs> but God will still use them. And in fact, God seems to me, with all my history with him, to take pleasure in using people that makes the church, you know, kind of bothered. <laughs> but unfortunately, my cousin committed suicide. It broke our hearts. And, uh, but then everybody I noticed around me all of a sudden believed in future forgiveness. Because their theology immediately changed. See, you don't, you don't know what you do to people when you're a preacher and you stand up in a, in a message and you, you, you've never had to drink of that cup and you just launch out words like, you know, you committed suicide and, you, and you're, you know, your son committed suicide and he's in hell. You don't even know what the heaven you're talking about. Man, you do almost irreparable damage by that kind of mess. To look at a little casket laying in front of a church and say, God, don't make mistakes and God chose them or God needed them in heaven or wanted another angel or picked a flower from the bouquet table of heaven. And it's all religious bull and it damages and hurts people. If I thought God took my kid, man, I would never, I'd drop my Bible in the trash can on the way out. I'd never speak to him again. How do you expect me to pray to God do that? See, I can make that kind of statement because that ain't nowhere near God. The Lord took, no, the Lord ain't take him. And I've set funeral after funeral, 30-something years now, and had to do funerals with preachers to stand up and lie to people like that at funerals. Had one just last in the fall. Said, God never makes a mistake. God took her. She was 19. No, she OD'd, man. She overdosed. God didn't take her. She overdosed. She killed herself accidentally, purpose. We don't really know, but she was a beautiful daughter of a friend of mine. And she, God didn't come and take her, though. God didn't come take her. God didn't want her to die. God didn't will her to die. If God's will was done, she'd still be alive. See, that's why Jesus raised the dead on earth. Because when they die, it's not always God's will. If it's always God's will to people to die when they die, no matter how young or old, then Jesus was working against the will of his Father by raising them back to life after they had been clocked out. It's just bull. Well, you just have a time. No, you can make your time to go today if you want it. Just step out here on 84 in front of a semi. We'll have your funeral. But we ain't going to say God took you. We're going to say you made a bad mistake. You have far more in leaving him than you realize. Some people get diseased and stuff and just give up. and they, They'll die quick when they give up. You don't give up. Life's a gift. 
but I was amazed how everybody's theology around me changed, including my uncle. And, but, you know, nobody discusses it then because it's taboo. Nobody wants to talk about it. But I could confidently go to the pulpit without feeling like a religious liar and with all my heart say, I, would, I have full assurance of where my cousin is today. He is with the Lord. Because it's not how you leave here. The Bible doesn't put any kind of conditions. It says, he that believeth on him, though he dead, yet shall he live. It doesn't say, though he dead, except if he commits suicide. There, no, no, no. If he dies of pneumonia, if he dies of COVID, if he dies in his own hands, because he just ain't got things thinking right. If he's born again, he goes to be immediately with the Father. To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. And that's what we need to know. Now I want you to stand with me. And I went a few minutes over there. <laughs> but it's okay, right? It's important, man, because my heart feels this. Because as a family, we, we dealt with it. We had a family that lived in our neighborhood that years ago where lost a, a, a young daughter, just really young. And we, I just wrote them a little note. Because you, you, you wonder about these things, you think about these things, and a lot of times religion hadn't done anything to bring the comforting power of the Holy Spirit and the truth to us. Man, I ain't encouraging nobody to do nothing to yourself, you hear me? There's something bad wrong when you just give up. But I want to say to moms and dads and people that listen to however God brings this cross to you, man, you don't, you don't believe that lie. The only issue is, are you, did you put your faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus? That, that's, that, that's the only issue. There, there are no other, you know, addendums to it. He that believeth on him, though he was dead, yet shall he live. And, and I noticed at that funeral, when I did my first cousin's funeral, Nobody had a problem. Nobody wanted to correct my theology. And everybody just remained silent. But as they get distant from that, then they go right back. And if you ask those people, they would argue with you and say, God does not. And that, see, that's why they taught us that if you, if you committed suicide, which is a sin, because thou shalt not murder, they said, and you're breaking one of the ten. So even though you're murdering yourself, it's still a sin, and it's one of the big ones. And so therefore, you've murdered yourself, therefore you couldn't ask for forgiveness because you can't ask for forgiveness until after you've done the sin, and that's why they go straight to hell. And so that's how they explained it. How many is raised on that mess besides me? Okay, most hand. Okay, look around. Look at that. Almost every hand in here. See, that? we was lied to, y'all. They lied to us. They lied to us. I'm not saying they meant to, but ignorance again won the day. Okay? It's not true. So if my first cousin, he didn't get to repent after he'd killed himself. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he took away not only the sins of everybody that would confess them, but the sin of the world. Now you don't enjoy that forgiveness until you put your faith in the one, the forgiver. And you receive the benefit of that forgiveness. Amen? And you become born again. But my cousin had absolutely put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was born again. He struggled in the natural. He struggled in the flesh with, with, with alcohol and a lot of things like that. And it finally made him, because that liver began to fail and, and a lot of things, and, and he just kind of gave up because he felt like he had destroyed his own body at a young age. And, and he got that diagnosis that your liver's gone, your liver's shot, and you got cirrhosis, and you got this, and you got that, and you probably won't unless we get a liver transplant. And he just, he, he, and all of that news just made him give up. 
And that's a sad thing. He was attending church regular. He was one of our members. I had just talked to him 10 days before he took his life. And it just shocked us and it broke our hearts. And I'm standing out in the front yard of his home where he lies in his living room. Still, he's laying in his living room with, with my uncles in my arms. But I could, I could look at him and say to him, I said, Uncle Jimmy, I'm so sorry this has happened. I can't believe it. But he's with the Lord. I said he's with the Lord. He's with the Lord. Sometimes you can not only be sick physically, but you can be sick mentally. You can make real bad decisions. And you can do things. But don't, don't yoke people with that. We're the ones that come with the news. That Jesus Christ, he paid it all. He, he, he took away the sin of the world. And to everybody that put their faith in him, he took away all their sins, future, past, present, all of them. That's not the issue anymore. Amen? Isn't that some good news? All right, let's give him praise for it. Lord, we love you. All right. All right, that's things Jesus never said. I could go on about four more Sundays, but I won't. And uh, I hope you got something out of it. I hope you, if you missed last Sunday, go online, listen to that as well, and uh, pray you be blessed in that. Go and sin no more. How about that? Love you.